Galileo was a Christian, Italian astronomer and physicist who challenged the traditional thinking of his day, and he made some important discoveries. He's most famous for his invention of the telescope, of course. And in 1609, using his telescope and the Bible, he began to make spectacular discoveries about heavenly bodies, such as the sun and the stars, our own galaxy, and of course, the earth. Among his discoveries was the idea that the earth was not the center of the universe, nor was it the center of our solar system. All the universe did not revolve around the earth, as was popular, popularly taught and believed in his day. And by the way, it was taught and it was believed very strongly by the church. He even showed his discoveries to Pope Paul V, but the church turned on him and attacked him. They told him that the earth was the center of God's creation, and if anything else was the center, it would be like the earth in worshiping it, which would be idol worship. The church even threw scripture at him. Their favorite was Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. Listen to this. And especially so because of the wordplay on Galileo. Acts chapter 1 verse 13 says, quote, Why are you men of Galilee standing here looking up into the sky? End quote. How's that for ripping a verse right out of context? Nevertheless, in 1632, Galileo was called before the leaders of the Inquisition to answer charges that his writings contradicted the church teachings and its tradition. He was 70 years old at the time and was at very least threatened with torture, if not actually tortured. The outcome was that Galileo was forced to recant his beliefs and state that his observations about the earth moving around the sun were errors and heresies. However, even after he recanted, he was placed under house arrest and treated badly by church officials until he became blind and feeble. He died on a cold winter's day in 1642 with his son and two pupils present. Of course, as we all know, Galileo was right. And the church was wrong, terribly wrong, because it was resistant to change. It resisted anything new. And such was the environment that Jesus Christ was born into when he was born into this earth and faced all of the religious leaders and teachers of his day. Same environment. The series that I've begun called Wineskins, I'm teaching because of the years that I personally spent in great bondage and the hell as a young person of growing up in the church, going through trying to find my way through all the trappings of traditional religious teaching. If I can help anybody in your walk with Jesus avoid some of the things that I went through, some of the doctrinal bondage that I was plagued with, 
then I will be happy that I have satisfied a mission that the Lord's called me to. You know, people are just looking for hope. People are looking for acceptance. People are looking for peace and they're looking for purpose. They'd love to turn to, turn to the church but they can't because for the most part especially in the Western church like in Galileo's time we criticize anything that's new. We criticize and we hold them out as sinners or rebellious if their experience in life isn't just like ours or if they haven't changed their behavior to join our group. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, Jesus is confronted by these same teachings, by these, this same religious spirit of his day, and he's asked in verse 33, they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and they offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegrooms take it away from them. And then they'll fast in those days. He also told them a parable no one tears a piece of a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old, and no one puts wine into the old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will all be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. I wonder if that's the religious thinking that grips so many of us today. The old is good. Certainly anything new can't be challenged. I mean, and of course the church has to be right. Last week we talked about the subject of a paradigm shift, the need to look at things differently. I submit to you that Jesus brought the greatest paradigm shift that the world has ever known. He entered into the toxic religious state of his day and shifted it completely, turned it on its head. We are in such a day again where religious teaching is being turned on its head and that religious teaching that most of us in this room have grown up with over the last number of decades is toxic. I've entitled my message this morning, Toxic Christianity and Other Conversations with Jesus. Jesus, verse 33, look at it in, your, in our text. Jesus why do you do things differently? Why do you want to come here and upset and rock our boat? 
Jesus, why are you threatening the status quo? Why are you going against what's been established here as tradition? And oh, and by the way, these religious leaders did not appreciate the fact, look at it in verse 29 through 31, that Jesus was hanging out with, one translation says, despicable people. I mean rank sinners. Jesus absolutely challenged religious systems. And in our text, in verse 33, you'll see two of them. Prayer and fasting. Now, you have to understand that in his day, every good Jew fasted on Tuesdays and on Thursdays, from sun up to sundown, religiously. And if you didn't fast, you were frowned upon. Now, this is interesting because you could eat as much as you wanted before you started and as much as you wanted after. So, I don't know. I think I could get along with that. <laughs> but boy, if you didn't fast. And prayer? Oh, especially the religious leaders. Jesus said, don't do your prayers in public. Religious leaders loved to do their prayers in public. In fact, they had to pray three times a day, at 10, at 3, and at 6. And boy, they didn't dare miss. In fact, as it was getting close to those times, they'd run and get in the town square or on a common corner or intersection where people could hear them praying so that they'd be thought of as holy, close to God. And Jesus, when he taught, said, don't be like them. You go and you pray in secret for your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. These individuals that are praying out loud and praying in public, that's their reward. <laughs> oh, and did Jesus stir that religious ship? Did, did He rocked it, set it on his heels. Another one that was common was, you've got to be separate. I mean, if you're going to be close to God, you've got to separate yourself from all that is unholy. And interestingly, they always had scripture for this, and here's how Jesus responded. John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. But it's those scriptures that witness about me. All your study, all your religious teaching, all your separating yourself from those that you consider to be sinful and unrighteous isn't bringing you any closer to God. You pride yourself on knowing your Bible so well and you think that in your study you have life and you miss altogether that I am the source of life, that the letter alone killeth. It is the spirit that brings life. I submit to you that the same is true today, that if you study the Bible without the anointing of the Holy Spirit, illuminating those passages and making them real to you in everyday life so that you can apply them to everyday life, it will become death to you. 
There's nothing life-giving about the scripture in and of itself without Christ illuminating it. Without his spirit. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Talk about rocking their boat. Here's a good one. John chapter 3 verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I don't want you to separate yourself. I want you to climb into the midst of the lives of those who are sinful. I want you to get in front of them. I want you to be there because you bring the presence of God. And did you notice in verse 33, the judgment, the condemnation? The Pharisees' disciples fast. The Pharisees fast. John's disciples fast. But your disciples drink and eat and have a good time and hang around with sinners. (laughs) What an accusation. I would love for Genesis to be known as the church that eats and drinks has great parties and hangs around with sinners. Come on. And right now, some of the religious amongst us are going, oh my God, (laughs) what did he just teach? What did he just say? That's the equivalent. It's the equivalent of what was happening in his day. Oh, and they got so mad at Jesus, they wanted to run him out of town and stone him. They tried once to throw him off a cliff. And he just walked through their midst and disappeared. Look at verse 34 and 35. Presence and experiencing God always takes precedence over form and process. Paul said the same thing. He said, you have a form of godliness, but you deny the power thereof. There are a lot of religious individuals who are tied to form, and they're tied to certain scriptures, and they, 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 they love to pray publicly. And Jesus said, you have your reward. I'm not interested in your form and I'm not interested in your process, not if it's devoid of my presence. It's almost helpful on Sunday morning, and I'm sure this is why God does this. I'm just sure. In every given Sunday morning service, I can make a list of things that I didn't like. That should have been done this way, and that should have been done another way, and boy, I wish they hadn't missed this, and oh, that wasn't on time, and that didn't sound good, and it's just, it's how I'm wired. It can be a blessing, it's often a curse. It made me good in the IT world, 
Is that a battery? Okay. Um, give, yeah, see, this is what I'm preaching. This just gets my goat. I'll keep my cool in front of you, but wait till I get home. This is why God does this. Because I, I am so given to form. I am so given to process. My, my mind, it's what made me great in the IT world of computers and servers and desktops and computers and all of that. Ones and zeros. Everything had to be exact. I mean, in the world of computers, you, if you're off a digit, if you type a space wrong, you can screw up somebody's network for days. I love that. <laughs> I love having to be exact. I, I love having to be sure. I love that everything is a one and a zero and has its place. And God comes into that and mixes it all up and says, I'm going to introduce a 14. And I'm going to put a five in there. And how about a three? And here's a 59. Yeah, and here's a virus. And one of your Christian brothers typed it and sent it to you just to get you... You know. And God says, into all of that imperfection, into your form and your process to which you are so given, you're fasting in your prayer, and you're feeling that you've got to be separate, I come into that. And I make you good. And I make you holy. Let's go to the... Jesus, your disciples don't fast, they feast. They're celebrating presence, to which Jesus said, Look, when the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast, you celebrate. Who goes to a wedding ceremony or to a wedding feast and fasts? That would be dishonoring to the groom and the bride. You celebrate. You celebrate the presence of Almighty God. I submit to you that Jesus did not come as an upgrade to your religion. He did not come to start a new religion called Christianity. He came to redeem back to himself that which was lost. Read it. You'll find it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. For this purpose, Christ came not to redeem those who were, but to redeem that which was. There's a difference. That which was includes those who were, but those who were wouldn't include that which was. So he came to redeem that which was lost, which is a whole lot bigger in scope than just you and me. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up this theme in chapter 7, starting in verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there be or have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, 
and from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Dear ones, the old system was done away with, not just patched. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't take a new patch off a new pair of jeans and patch a hole in an old pair of jeans that have already shrunk. The new patch hasn't shrunk yet. So if you attach a new patch from a new pair of jeans to an old pair of jeans that's already shrunk and worn in, that patch is going to come loose and tear. He said you can't take old wine and pour it into, or new wine and pour it into an old wine skin because as that new wine ferments, it's going to burst the wine skin and everything is going to be lost, wine and skin also. And so he says, why would you, in your approach to God, in what you believe about God and his character, why would you, in studying scripture, why would you, in your effort to be like God or to be close to God, hang on to a system that is old and that I am doing away with? Don't try to patch the old with the new just get rid of the old and live in the new. Jesus isn't here to patch up an old system of believing. Jesus isn't here to patch up the law of Moses. He's not here to patch up a system of behavioral modification and changes and trying to prove yourself before God so that God will accept you. Now, to a large extent, Western Christianity has been a system for something you do, a system for how you do something, how you get saved, or how you should believe. We've made faith about a timeless system of morals rather than the good news about an event that took place in history that changed all of time. Jesus put away the old, and he fulfilled it. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, get this, if that first covenant had been faultless, so it was faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But we had to have a second because the first one was full of fault. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers. Go down to verse 10. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Get this. New wine, new wineskin. New wine, new wineskin. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I'm going to take new wine, and I'm going to have to pour it in new wineskin. Old wineskin, old laws, old system of doing and behaving won't hold the new wine. So I'm going to make a new covenant, and I'm going to pour it in new wineskin, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And that's the number one thing that the church has always been about whenever it comes to outreach and evangelism, is we've got to go out and teach the unbeliever. You are a sinner. You need to know the Lord. You're not right with God. Change your behavior and come know the Lord. It's evangelism 101. Jesus said, I'm going to do away with that. I'm creating a new wineskin, and here's, here's how the new wine operates. I'm going to take my law, and I, not you, not you through study, not, not you through going to church, not you through your prayers, I am going to take my law, and I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to put it in their heart, and they're going to be my people. And you're not going to have to go around teaching your neighbors. You need to know the Lord. Why? Because that's not your business. You can't play Holy Spirit. You're not to go to your neighbor and point out their sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 through 19. I'll finish the chapter. Through verse 20 and 21. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And if he isn't, we shouldn't. So you're not going to go out counting people's trespasses, saying, you need to know the Lord. You're simply going to come alongside each of the individuals God brings you through privilege into their life to love, to build relationship with, and you're going to be a testimony of God's goodness. You're going to be a testimony of his love. Verse 12, watch this. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And the religious spirit says, but yeah, that doesn't apply to the homosexual. That doesn't apply to my neighbor. That doesn't apply to my coworker. They're without God. That's talking about the Christian who's already accepted Jesus as Savior. Really? That's an interesting exegesis of Scripture. Where did you get that religious tradition? Jesus comes and he turns it all upside down. And he says now, speaking of a new covenant, verse 13, he makes the first one, get this, he makes the first one obsolete. Dear ones, the old covenant is obsolete. The old system of behavior modification is obsolete. The old way of believing and doing and approaching God by behavior and by doing something to appease him or to get his approval is now obsolete. He's writing his laws on our heart, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old, and it's vanishing away. And verse 37 and 38 of our text, he's making new wine skins for new wine. And he says, now, this is going to change people's life. 
And my disciples are living in the joy of that. They're living in the victory of that. They're living in the peace of that. They're living in the purpose of that. They have hope. This brings hope to life because it's not based on a religious system of doing. It's based on a religious, not uh, an experience, excuse me. It's not based on a religious experience of doing. It's based on an experience with God where the Holy Spirit comes into our life and imparts the very righteousness of God to us. It's called grace. You see, something actually happened that changed the way in which God is now in charge of the world. We don't really believe that. Let me say it again. Something actually happened that changed the way that God is now in charge of the world. God's plan was much bigger than just making us right. What God did for you and me in Easter is actually his plan for the whole world. Easter isn't just for you. Easter is for the whole world. In fact, Easter isn't just for human beings. Easter is for all of creation. The Bible says God's going to turn the whole thing around. He's going to redeem the earth. He's going to redeem the animals. He's going to redeem the plants. He's going to redeem all of creation and make it right. It went wrong when Adam and Eve sinned. But Jesus came and he made it right. Grace is the wineskin. The good news is the wine. And here's a bit of toxic Christianity. I call it good advice instead of good news. You need to say a prayer. You need to avoid certain types of behavior. And you need to go to church. Toxic Christianity. That's not good news. That's good advice. That's what you get when you go to the therapist. That's what you get when you stay after school and you are tutored by your, your teacher. That's, that's what you get when you go to a friend and you say, I'm down, I need some good advice. People give us advice. And in this case, toxic Christianity says, well, your spiritual condition will get better if you will pray, if you will read your Bible, and if you will go to church. That is not new wine. And that is not new covenant. That's certainly not grace, it's works. That's not good news, that's advice. It's a system that we plug into rather than an event that transformed the whole world. We have focused on reordering our spirituality instead of on God who has reordered and transformed the entire universe through what Jesus did on the cross. So whether you reorder your spirituality or you ever believe in the good news or accept Jesus as your Savior, God is still going to bring an Easter to this world. God, through Christ, has, re has already proclaimed Easter to the whole world, including all of our friends, all of our neighbors, all of our co-workers, and all of the individuals that you might classify in a particular group or classification of people who are outside of God. God has already taken care of Easter for them.
You see, when Jesus went into that grave, I went with him. When Jesus rose out of that grave, I rose with him. And the Bible says this is true not just for me, someone who has recognized it, received it, and by faith put my trust in it, but it's true about my neighbor. It's true about my coworkers. It's true about my family members that don't yet know him, who aren't yet following him. It's true for all of them. It's something that God did. It's not based on my goodness. It's not based on my behavior. It's something he predetermined to do as new wine in a new wineskin. So we have a system of good advice versus the system of or the relationship of good news through Jesus Christ, that he has transformed the world. Here's a simple test. And you have some of these notes in your handout there. Look at this. Grace versus the law test. Grace is concerned with the heart, while law is concerned with external activity. Grace asks, what's your heart feel about doing devotions and attending church and serving God? Law says it doesn't matter what you feel, as long as you check everything off your list. I lived there. I grew up there. That's what I was taught. You have a list, Jeff. You need to check off the things you've done. And I lived in bondage. Grace says, I love to worship God whenever and wherever I can. I worship him as much as I can. Law says, you're not really doing devotions unless you do them first thing in the morning for at least a half, of hour, a half an hour, and you're not really a Christian unless you tithe 10% and attend church at least 75% of the time. Oh, and by the way, you had better enjoy it. <laughs> I lived in that world. I grew up in that world. I mean, the length of our hair was judged. The length of your skirt was judged. Whether you prayed, how you smiled when you were in the choir, whether you smiled, whether you raised your hand and acted like you had hands and acted like you had the victory was all judged. It was all this system of works. Do a little self-analysis, excuse me. Do a little self-analysis here. Number one, all the problems in my life are a result of sin. If you find yourself there, if you say, yeah, that I, I, then you might be operating more in law than you are in grace. Here's a second one. Strong emotions are sinful. Number three, simply having fun with no spiritual emphasis is sinful. Ouch. I grew up with that. That was taught. That was my religion. Number four, a person is truly spiritual only when they are perfect. <laughs> Number five, success in business or being rich is sinful. Number six, becoming a Christian fixes all of the problems of life. Oh, dear one. <laughs> You've never known problems until you become a Christian. Number seven, if I'm not healed from a sickness, it's because of a lack of faith. Number eight, drinking, going to movies, and playing cards are wrong for all Christians. It'll send you to hell. Do you know some sins are geographical? I'll never forget my first time over in Europe, invited by an apostolic 
by an apostle who's in our life still to this day, 20, 25 years later. He took us, asked us to accompany him to Europe. And it was a big convention of thousands and thousands, hundreds of churches, hundreds of ministers. And behind the dais, before going out for service, the elders, the apostles, the prophets, pastors, were back behind the dais praying. I was invited back. We were walking and praying and there was singing and lifting hands and pressing into the things of God. And all of a sudden, I turned this direction and over against this wall, along the entire wall, were tables loaded with food. And I thought, praise God, a little bite before we go out. But then I also saw liquor of several sorts. Liquor. Beers. Now these were holy men and women. These were apostles and prophets. I was aghast. How can you go out and prophesy? How can you lay hands on the sick? How can you pretend to be hearing from the Holy Spirit when you've had a beer? And that's when I realized some sins are geographical and very, very religious. Dear ones, we need to understand the backstory of the good news. The backstory of the good news. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that you have a relative who's very sick. It's very serious. If there's not an intervention, maybe a miracle, something certainly medically that just turns, you might lose them. You're waiting anxiously. All of a sudden, the phone rings. And the first two words you hear is, Good news! Wouldn't you get excited? I mean, wouldn't you immediately identify that those two words were connected to the backstory regarding your relative? Do you know what the backstory has been? for most of the Western church. We're basically sinners. We're in deep trouble. God is going to punish us all forever. So tell people, if you say this prayer, your sins will be forgiven, you'll be forgiven, God won't be mad at you anymore, and you'll go to heaven. That's our backstory. And it's so not what Jesus taught about new wine, new wineskins, and a new system that I'm not going to patch, I'm going to completely transform. Not just for you, but for entire, the entire creation which was lost in what Adam and Eve did. I'm going to redeem it all. And you're not going to have anything to do with it. I'm going to do it regardless of whether you ever believe it or accept it. That'll be your decision, but I'm going to do it. N.T. Wright, a Scottish theologian, says, and I quote, that that backstory for Christianity is not only mistaken, but it's not the backstory of the Bible that the Bible gives itself. The biblical narrative is that God made a beautiful world 
And he wanted humans to help him run it and to be the ones to sum up worship and praise and then present that back to him. Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden didn't just put humans in trouble. It put the whole creation out of joint. And so the good news is that by putting us right in Christ, God has taken a dramatic step in his plan to put the whole world right. Most modern Christians, Catholic, Protestant, liberal, or conservative, miss what the sinfulness of human beings and their redemption means without the larger creational covenantal purposes. If we get the backstory wrong, we've got the whole good news wrong. I submit to you that the conversation that Jesus is having with the world and with all of us today is based on new wine in a new wineskin. It's full of grace. It's full of what God did to receive you, not what you do to chase after him.